Walgreens says it's changing the way it evaluates pharmacist performance as it works to promote tasks that better support patient care. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about local housing, including how price growth is decelerating rapidly in several U.S. cities, but not so much in Chicago. But when you look at some of those cities that were the most bubblicious around the country... Bubblicious. <laughs> I don't know if they want to be called that. Their home value growth has been cut in half. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, October 27th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit J.D power.com slash awards. Hi there and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host Amy Guth and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello Dennis, how are you? I'm great Amy, how are you? I'm well, thank you. We have got a lot to do and I start every single episode saying that but I really, really mean it every time, and I really, really mean it today. <laughs> well, good. I brought notes. Good. I'm glad, because as I often say, you do a lot of math so that the rest of us do not have to, and I think today we're going to lean on that math pretty heavily. But I say that with, with, this, with this kind of note on there, and that is there's a lot of mixed signals going on in the market right now, and I'm hoping you can use some of that math to help us make sense of it. In particular, you reported recently that a lot of buyers and sellers, or more buyers and sellers anyway, are suddenly kind of calling time out on the housing market. Tell me about this. This is interesting data um, coming. It came out on Monday. This is data for last week. It's weekly data. But uh, for last week, we saw that uh, activity both by buyers and by sellers was at the lowest point uh, that it had been since before the pandemic. Both marks it were actually in 2019 before the pandemic. Um, buyer activity would be putting homes under contract. There were 2,446 homes put under contract last week, one fewer the week before, about the same. Those two numbers are the lowest since December 2019, the smallest number of homes put under contract in the Chicago area. Seller activity would be putting new listings on the market. There were 4,626 homes put on the market in the Chicago region last week. That's the lowest since February 2019. This is a really strong sign that people are saying, okay, we're out. <laughs> the, the real estate market has changed dramatically as interest rates have risen. That was intentional. Federal Reserve wanted to slow inflation and said, we are trying to slow inflation by raising interest rates. Mortgage rates follow right along with the Federal Reserve's rates and have risen so much that buyers are looking and saying, I can't afford what I used to be able to afford. Housing payments are going up dramatically as interest rates go up, so I'm not gonna do it. And sellers are seeing that there are very few sales. Um, 
and saying and that there are very few buyers in the market. So they're saying, you know, then I, I'm going to take this off or uh, maybe I was getting ready to list and I'm just not going to do it. I realize there's no way to know for sure, but, but do you have a sense of, is this sort of something that's expected uh, as a reaction, as a temporary reaction, or might this have a, a longer impact? We don't know. This is weekly data. Yeah. Have to see what happens. One of the things that is sort of interfering here is that is seasonality. Normally at this time of year, listings and sales go way down, but it hasn't been normal for a couple of years. In 20, uh, we're in 2022. In 2021 and 2020, neither of those figures dipped real far at this time of year. In 2019 and years prior, it would have. So uh, is, is it a sign that we're back to that kind of normality I th or normalcy? I think um, it, that's, that may be a piece of it, but it's also that interest rates, don't forget, interest rates, we've said this almost every week for a while, have been going up so fast. They've more than doubled. They started the year at about 3%, and now, not yet even the end of the year, are at about 7%. And that dramatically changes what you can afford. So seasonality probably playing in, interest rates playing in. Will it be temporary? Well, you know, if interest rates keep going up. Perhaps not. Um, <laughs> I think we may see these numbers drop even farther. We'll see. I feel like that's the other thing we say on the Amy Dennis bingo cards. We'll have to wait and see is probably right in the middle. That's a gimme every single week. Yeah. And when, you know, a, a week is not a long time in the housing market, although right now it is kind of things are changing so quickly that a week is is a chunk of time is a larger chunk of time than it might seem. As I said, these are kind of a lot of mixed signals and some competing narratives here, and that's why it's important to unpack each one. But another thing you've reported on recently is that as these kind of housing bubble kind of environments have started to deflate in other U.S. cities, Chicago home values have continued to grow pretty steadily. Right. So one thing to keep in mind as we get into this topic is I was just talking about data from last week. What we're about to talk about is data from August, because this is the Case-Shiller Index, which lags because it's they're studying national data. But what we saw in data that came out this week from Case-Shiller, it's a monthly index. Um, in August, Chicago area home prices were for the 16th month in a row up 11% or more from the same time a year earlier. Home prices in August were up 11.3% single family home prices in August, according to Case Schiller in the Chicago area. That, uh, that compares to 19.8% nationwide. We do generally run below the national figure. We've been steady. Our figure for August 2022 is approximately the same as August 2021. Uh, it was about 13% a year ago. But when you look at some of those cities that were the most bubblicious around the country. Bubblicious. <laughs> I don't know if they want to be called that. Um, their home value growth is has been cut in half um, or, or more. Phoenix, which you and I talked about month after month because it was always leading the pack, we'd be we'd have price growth of about 12 percent year from one month to the same month a year before. Phoenix consistently was in the 30s, 33 percent month after month after month. Uh, so last August it was at. 33%. This August, it was at 17%. So, you know, their prices are still growing faster than ours at this moment or in August. Could fall farther. Don't know. That number could fall farther. Um, San Francisco is stunning. Home prices were up 21% in August 2021 from the year before. 
they were up 5.6% in August 2022. Um, so none of this is home prices falling. This is home prices not growing up, growing as much as they were. And But what that indicates is the, in those cities, also San Diego, Washington, a few others, um, they were really in bubble territory, and, and now that growth is shrinking. By comparison, ours has been very steady. So that, that, I think, is really good news. That's another sign. You and I have been looking for them quite a bit, signs that we were not in a bubble, and I think that's one of them. Um, that's August data. We have no idea. September could change that 16-month run of 11% or more. That could end. We don't know. But as of late August, um, Chicago home prices were still holding very steady um, by Chicago home price growth was still holding very steady compared to some of those bubblicious cities. Right, right. <laughs> bubblicious. That probably was not on the Amy Dennis bingo card. We need to get a product endorsement. We need to get product <laughs> placement. I should have brought some. <laughs> bubblicious, I know, right? So just to kind of look at that at, at face value, you know, you go, oh, okay, so home prices are, this is the story about them. But it really, I think that's why it's important to unpack these to say, hey, the, the story here is that we were not in bubble territory here. And I think that's just important to keep underlining instead of saying, oh, Chicago is like leading the pack. It's really about steadiness versus really rapid growth and now seeing a hit on that. And people have often said, you know, I've been doing this job for a very long time. And in the last boom and even prior to that, in the late 90s, people would say, well, Chicago is always a Midwestern city. It's always going to be more conservative than other cities. There are other reasons as well that our price growth wasn't quite as strong, and they include flat population and, and other things. But it, it does appear that Midwestern conservatism and those other factors may help us because, you know, bubbles inflate and they can deflate. That's not to say that our prices won't go down, that we won't, that it won't be a national drop. But um, so far, we look like we're a little more solid than some of those places like San Diego, Phoenix, San Francisco, Washington, D.C. And for a while, it was kind of this, the, the big four cities on the West Coast that were really kind of leading that bubble territory. It seemed like it moved south and west during earlier parts of the pandemic. Yeah, Phoenix was really the, the do we still say poster child? Phoenix was, was really the poster child for the, for the pandemic boom. Um, and what's really interesting is while almost every city had smaller growth in August from August 2021, in two cities it's still going. Um, Miami, Miami and Tampa both had bigger, really big, bigger price growth in August 2022 than in August 2021. And I haven't seen an explanation for that, but it could also be like the weekly data we were talking about. It could also be a one month story that uh, is different next month when we get the data. Yeah, certainly. Uh, another story that you, you wrote recently, the very, very, very much related to this, that, that rising interest rates and, and recession concerns certainly uh, might be impacting the number of homes sold in the area. But that's a little bit different story in terms of home prices. Talk to me about that. Uh, OK, so we were just talking about August. Now we're going to talk about September. These, these data reports are for different periods. Coming out in October was data on uh, the real estate market in the nine-county metro area and in Chicago itself for September. And the median price of homes sold in September in the region grew by 5% in September, which is more than it grew in July and August. So while we're thinking, oh no, things are really gonna start to collapse, 
it actually turned up. Um, prices were flat in the city, and that was actually better than it had been before. Prices had been down, five, the, the median price of homes sold had been down about 5% in August, and then were flat in September, so that too is relatively an improvement. Um, home prices in the city have been flat for about six months out of 2022, and I don't yet know why that is. Um, one thing to think about is uh, the median price is the middle price on a list of everything sold, from the most expensive to the least expensive. It's the one in the middle. Um, right. It can be influenced by, it doesn't mean that all home prices have gone up or down this much, though generally we use that as sort of a, a proxy for that. Um, you know from our discussions, the upper end of the market is still just going gangbusters, just absolutely sure. booming. So there is a possibility that, that these price increases are a reflection of those sales. But the problem is that's a handful of sales in several thousand. The, the bulk of sales, uh, several thousand homes sell in the region in the course of the month. Fewer than 100 are up there at that top end. So. It, that may be a factor, but it's not the entire explanation for why the median price went up in September. I, I think one of the things is, um, as we've been talking, inventory is very low. And I think there were probably a lot of people toward the end, as, as interest rates started to rise, who were saying, I got to get something right now because it's going to get a lot worse real soon. And we need to move because we're having a baby. We're, for whatever reason, we need to move. Um, so I, I think there may have been sort of a haste factor in here, people rushing to get to lock in their home purchase before things got much worse. Another thing we'll have to wait and see and, and continue to track as the year keeps going. Um, so now let's talk about housing affordability, because that's another thing. All these kind of different uh, number sets that, that all kind of converge. And I think it's important that we keep saying these are from different time periods. You know, we're looking at months, certain different months and week periods as opposed to just months. So there's a lot of uh, different pieces here. But but housing affordability, let's talk about that, too. And they're also reported by different agencies right. or outlets, so they have different standards and that sort of thing, but generally solid barometers of what's going on. Um, affordability Zillow reported that um, in the course of the boom, homes in the United States in general rose about 25% above their long-term affordability level. Affordability is a measure of how many people at how many people with incomes, what percentage of income earning people can afford a typical home in the market? And Zillow has a long term line. And then how much did you vary from that? United, the nationwide, we're up about 25%. Homes are that much harder to afford than they were over the long term prior to the boom. 25% nationwide, 9.6% in Chicago. So clearly, once again, you know, are we in a bubble? Well, it doesn't look like it. Um, we that is that's big growth, 9.6%. That means that homes became less affordable for a large number of people, but not like in other cities, not like in places like Nashville, where um, affordability or homes rose to 39% above their old affordability level. Um, Jacksonville, Las Vegas, several others rose to 35% or more above their affordability levels. We rose 9.6%. Um, once again, uh, this is a point in time. Things could change. But the good news in this is that we didn't 
we just didn't get so far out of range that um, we didn't have some of the problems that people are having, having to leave those markets. Um, we've read about homelessness in a lot of California cities exploding because people, because homes became so much less affordable, all sorts of other things. Um, not that we do not have a homelessness problem in Chicago, but we didn't have it pushed by home price increases. Um, of 25 major cities, only Baltimore rose by less out of its own old affordability range. Baltimore rose by 3.7%. So it's 3.7% less affordable than it used to be, or than it has been over the long term. We're 96 um, another good sign, you know, we've talked about so many times, Chicago's affordability is a real selling point. Employers should be able to pull people in by saying so. Um, and this is another sign that um, we really are, we're very affordable. One of the interesting, uh, one of the reasons we do so well on this scale is that we have relatively high median income, relatively low home prices. Our incomes, according to Zillow, are about 9.6% above the U.S. average. Our home prices are about 13% below. That's a, that's a big space that makes your homes much more affordable than if you were in Nashville, Las Vegas, Jacksonville, all those kinds of places. All right, well, let's shift now and talk about some specific houses, some specific buildings. Let's start by talking about Rush Street and a seven-story building with a dwelling on top that is perhaps in the works. Tell me about this. Yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of fascinated by this one. And fortunately, readers seemed to be as well. There is, or there are, a two-story and a one-story building in the 1,000 block of North Rush Street that are vacant now. They are both going to be taken down. And this seven-story seven building just got approval. The developer is a firm that has owned the building since the 1990s, since 1995. Lower levels would be retail, middle levels would be restaurants, and then the upper level you can see and a partial, uh, that's the sixth floor, and a partial seventh floor with a rooftop garden would be a residential unit. So you'd be the only residence in the building. Uh, I couldn't find out, they, they didn't respond to my calls, so I don't know whether it will be for sale or for rent, but I think it would have really interesting cachet. You know, you're one of those people who goes to Carmine's right next door, who formerly would have gone to Tavern on Rush, which Ali Marathi has reported is closing right down the block. You've got steakhouses and everything else all, all around in there, and there, I think there's a little bit of cachet to saying, why don't we go to my rooftop deck? It's right across the street. I'm the only one in right. the building. You know, <laughs> I think I think it would be kind of cool. I, I can just imagine sort of the storylines that might develop in that neighborhood known as the Viagra Triangle when you're you've got the only residence and the only rooftop deck overlooking Rush Street. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm really fascinated by by how much change is coming to that area. It seems like it has been kind of this um, institution for such a long time with with not a lot of change there. And as you mentioned, Ali Marathi has has been reporting on on a lot of those changes coming as as restaurants are turning over and maybe looking at new concepts and things like that. But I think that's fascinating to be like I literally rule this building. Yeah, <laughs> I exactly. I rule this building. And Amy, <laughs> let me correct an impression I might have given. Uh, I, I only mean you're the only resident in that building. There are other residential spaces on Rush Street. Of course. Um, but this would be, you'd, you'd be the only resident or the only family of residents in this building. 
And the only rooftop deck. Yeah, I, I, there aren't a lot of properties like that. There's usually, you know, multiple, uh, multiple units in a building like that, even if it's just a couple of them with retail on the bottom. But I can't remember us ever talking about one that's just the dwelling and then a bunch of retail. Well, I also think it's sort of a, a super 21st century version of living over the store, right? I would like to see, I was sort of hoping that the developer was was planning to move in. And as I said, they didn't call me back. But uh, I would love to think that you're like opening a restaurant down below and you're going to have your own private space and like people might come up and see the chef's table or whatever and then go to the rooftop. But um, it would be pretty fabulous living above the store there. Oh, Definitely. Quite a place to live above the store, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, we were talking about restaurants. Let's keep that theme going. The Let Us Entertain You CEO, uh, Kevin Brown, is selling his home in Kenilworth. Tell me about this place. So Kevin Brown has worked for Let Us Entertain You since 1977. He's the CEO. Uh, he bought this house with his, unfortunately, now deceased wife in 1993. Uh, it's on Abbotsford in Kenilworth. It's, I said in the story, it's core Kenilworth. You can walk a few blocks, get to the Joseph Sears Elementary School, get to New Trier, get to the beach, get to Metra. Um, you can go down to uh, Plaza del Lago and eat uh, or grocery shop. It, and it's also a really nice house. It was built in 1904. Um, one of the things I like is it's got, it truly has a wraparound porch. We saw the front, but it goes all the way around the side and then the back. So you have a really unusual version of indoor outdoor living. It was raining when I was writing the story and I was imagining being out on that back porch and it's raining, but you're kind of inside. Um, and then inside you have, this is the, the library, very nicely paneled, really great old house. Um, Neither Brown nor his real estate agent would return to my call, would comment. She, she called, but she didn't comment. Um, so I don't know much, but it certainly appears that since buying the house in 1993, they've massively rehabbed the entire interior. It looks really good. It looks very stylish. Um, and it also, there's a coach house out back, a three-car garage with, I think it was a one-bedroom apartment upstairs. Really, like, I mean, I don't think you can get much more Kenilworth than this. And, and you said this is a 1903 build? 1904. 1904. I don't think I said the price. Just less than $3 million. I mean... You would not look at this house and think it is that old of a building. It really looks like a, a new build that has been built to look like this classic Kenilworth home. It does not show those kind of details. It looks like the renovation was very thoughtfully done, a lot of details, and it looks very fresh and new. Yeah, what I don't know is, did they do it all at once in, two, in 1993? Have they done it four times since 1993? Have they done it in phases? But certainly, as it's in the condition it is when put on the market, it's very updated. It looks really good. And just some really great finishes. I wish I knew more, but they didn't want to talk. Yeah, yeah, a lot of beautiful finishes in this house. You can head to chicagobusiness.com and you can see some of these photos for yourself. Let's move to another house. A little bit earlier, we were talking about that high, high end of the market. I think this qualifies for sure. This is a, a Lake Geneva home uh, that has uh, been sold for $17 million. We've, we've talked about a couple of Lake Geneva homes. We were talking about the Dree House uh, place that sold uh, just next door. Right next door to this one, yeah, that Driehaus, the Driehaus uh, mansion sold in January for $36 million, record price for Lake Geneva. This just sold right next door last week for $17 million. Uh, 
it's the second highest price, which, is, which tells you just how far above the market that $36 million purchase was. There have been several others purchased at, 10 million, at over $10 million. We've talked about them. We also we talked about this house when it came on the market, you and I. It came on the market in early 2021. They were asking $20.75 million. It's a wonderful, it's on 20 acres. And let's hold this photo here for just a second, Rob, because this is kind of interesting. Um, you can see from this photo. Uh, Amy, you know that in Lake Geneva, there is a tradition, there's a walking path. You can walk all the way around the lake. You get to walk right onto people's properties, including the Driehaus, now Reyes, uh, property next door. You can, if you see, you look at the water, then you can see the path, then you see sort of a band of brown. What the sellers told me is, this is one of the few houses where you don't see the hoi polloi walking by on the path, because the slope comes down, and then there's essentially a wall. It's It's landscaped but it drops down to the path so you're looking out from your home at the lake not at joe blow pushing a stroller um you know and listening to his headphones passing your house which which is one of the distinctions of this house another is it was built for members of the swift family the meatpacking dynasty this was built for um, hortense and edward swift edward was the son of gustavus swift who is the founder of that meatpacking dynasty one of the big meatpacking dynasties in chicago um, that was founded in the 1870s edward is a uh, an executive in his father's business when they build this and they name it Villa Hortensia. It's des uh, designed by uh, Howard Van Doren Shaw, who actually designed some other Swift family mansions in Lake Forest and elsewhere. Um, really a spectacular place, 503 feet of frontage on Lake Geneva. The house itself is 12,400 square feet because you would have come up on the train with all your, you know, your, um, your whole retinue, all your maids and butlers and everybody else, and they all had to live in the house with you. Um, it's on 20 acres, I said. So the house is 12,400 square feet. There are two other homes on the property, two other houses, total of 13 bedrooms at this estate. So when it came on the market, I spoke to the family who owned it, the McDonald's. They lived in Florida. It was a multi-generational ownership. Parents and a couple of uh, their children all owned the house in a trust. They were from Kenosha. Uh, we talked about this at the time. They were from Kenosha. They moved to Florida, still wanted a place in Lake Geneva. So why not get a 20-acre, 13-bedroom estate? And they did. And they shared it for about 25 years, put it on the market didn't sell, took it off the market. And then what happened uh, in recent weeks is somebody approached them and said, how about 17 million? And they took it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they had been asking over 20. They dropped to over 18, took it off the market, sold it at 17. Um, my competitor at the Chicago Tribune also reported this story. He has speculation in there that this will be demolished. Um, I think that would be sad. I don't have any, nobody told me about this speculation except that article. Um, I think that would be, that would really be a change for Lake Geneva because this is, this is one of those, you know, if you go to Lake Geneva and you take that boat tour, this is one of the houses they point out. Yes. Um, they also point out the one next door, the Driehouse Mansion. And um, to see this taken down would be difficult. It's also possible that the 20 acres get subdivided. Maybe you sell off some of the acreage and keep the house. We don't know. I don't know who bought it. Uh, but I did want to point out that the Tribune said that there is speculation it would be demolished. Yeah. I hope that's wrong. Right. All right. Well, let's move to Riverwoods and talk about this glass-walled house that you have written about there. 
You know what, Amy? I would agree with you. Let's move to Riverwoods because <laughs> both of us really want this house. Yes. Um, this is this is a really interesting house. This photo doesn't quite show it. It shows you approaching through. This is on Woodland Lane in Riverwoods. Riverwoods, for people don't know, people who don't know, is west of Deerfield. It's a very wooded area. Ryerson Woods is there, and so you drive down this narrow wooded road. You come out into this property. This was built in 1964 by uh, a man who'd been a student of. Uh, Mies van der Rohe at IIT, Philip Thrain. He builds this not too long for himself and his family, not too long later, moves to Minnesota, then moves to California. It has had other owners over time, but he really built a Miesian house. And then in 2008, a couple came along, I believe, I think they were the fourth owners. They bought it and they did a lot of restoration rehab because for instance these floors had been darkened and the whole concept of a place like this is uh, light both lightness in weight and lightness illumination and when you darken both those floors and that wall you see by the fireplace it would have had a very different impression i didn't see the house at the time but but they said they were you know essentially like espresso colored which really would change the house so what thrain designed is this glass box we're seeing the front windows off the living room foyer and dining room there's the same off the back, off the kitchen. So you would see straight through the house if it weren't for this mass wall where the fireplace is and the kitchen behind it. And then the rest of the house is clad in brick. So this is sort of like a, an open glass bridge between the brick masses. And one thing that's really interesting, I mean, look at, before I keep talking, let's just say, ooh, ah, this, I love this. Isn't this wonderful? It's so serene. And so one of the things they, the sellers said is, you know, you're in the house, you're in this wooded area, deer walk by. And, and the woman said, we don't know if they're looking at us or we're looking at them. Um, there's a line from Mies van der Rohe. Again, Mies was uh, a teacher of Philip Thrain. There's a line from Mies van der Rohe that they refer to where he was trying to design houses like the Farnsworth House and others to unify human nature and house right and this really does you feel as if you're out in it here's something they did to enhance that i cannot figure out why but some of the rooms in that brick part of the house had no windows they had skylights you can see the skylight at the top of the photo they had no windows there must have been a concept thrain is no longer living but he must have had some sort of a concept um, but he didn't put in windows. So this couple put in these slit windows in a few of the rooms to give you a view of nature, to give you more light. They did it this way to sort of stick with the long, low, rectilinear, mm -hmm. yeah, rect right, right. rectilinear look of the house. Um, they also put in these bookshelves, by the way. But uh, I, it, it's hard for me to understand why you would build rooms with no windows, even if they had skylights, especially when you're in a setting like, look at this setting where you're just bathed in trees and they have foxes and squirrels and raccoons and coyotes and everything and deer we already mentioned passing through they made a really good change here in the kitchen let's stay on the kitchen for a second rob um, when they bought the house there had been a, a gazebo added they showed me a picture and it was essentially the size of a room there was this thing jacked onto the back which would have given you sort of like a family room but it blocked the view outside and it broke these wonderful, simple lines of the house. So they took that down. They took that down and they um, put down a patio 
that is just a real simple slab. So it's more of these simple planes that the house is made of. And one other change they made, you're looking now at this fireplace wall. As I said, the floors were dark, that wall was dark. They took off all the wood and they put up this veined tile that gives it a little bit of texture. It's green, so it picks- It almost looks like water. Yeah, yeah, like water or like the outdoor surroundings. I think it's a really nice, simple change. And here's a bathroom that they changed, really trying to stay with that Miesian aesthetic that Philip Thrain designed for the house. And I didn't say yet, I don't think, they're asking just under $1.1 million. As we're having this conversation and looking at this very beautiful Zen house, I don't know if you can hear it. There's a very loud truck happening outside of my building, like honking and beeping and moving stuff around. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to tune that out and just focus on this beautiful house in Riverwoods where there is not a loud truck. Well, I think I, that just underscores the message that we should move to Riverwoods, Amy, just like you said, because we need this house. And the thing is, two bedrooms have this. They go right out onto the patio. So you can live at one end of the house. I'll live at the other. And we'll have our separate retreats and meet there in the kitchen to do the podcast. I see no downside to this. I really don't. <laughs> we just need to come up with the millions of dollars. Okay, to get sold. It. Indeed. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? Uh, I have a couple of things. There are two men who are former aides to like the biggest celebrity there ever was who are assembling a rental portfolio in Chicago. The biggest celebrity who ever was. Hmm. I know you, you think it's me, but it's actually yeah. somebody even bigger. That's why I was confused. Like, why refer to yourself in third person like that? That's really awkward. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have to just live on that cliffhanger for the week then. I hope you will. Yes. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. Always a pleasure. All right. See you then. Coming up amid a hiring spree, a logistics firm joins the list of freight brokerage companies beefing up their office space downtown. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Bull dealt drugs, got caught, and served his time. He returns to Lakeview and his home, now unrecognizable. Presented in partnership with CLATA's Destinos Festival, Come See Bull, a love story at the Copley Theater in Aurora. Be the first to see the world premiere play written by Nancy Garcia Loza and directed by Laura Alcala Baker in downtown Aurora. Don't miss your chance to experience a Latino family coming back together after a decade apart. Bull, a love story runs October 5th through November 20th. Get tickets today at ParamountAurora.com. That's ParamountAurora.com. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Deerfield-based Walgreens is changing the way it evaluates pharmacists' performance as it works to promote tasks that better support patient care. That according to an announcement from the company on Wednesday. The pharmacy chain, one of the largest in the U.S., has been investing in pharmacy staff after facing labor issues that started during earlier phases of the pandemic. Last fiscal year, the company invested $190 million in its pharmacy staff, with the money going toward things like overtime pay and bonuses. The company expects to see even more in the 2023 fiscal year, which started in September, earmarking $265 million for pharmacy staff. The move is part of an effort at Walgreens to move deeper into health care and build relationships with patients. The company has been adding primary care centers in some of its U.S. locations. Walgreens has also invested in pharmacy automation technology, with eight micro-fulfillment centers nationwide that fill prescriptions and allow pharmacists to then dedicate more time to clinical services and patient consultations, rather than counting pills. 
Holly May, Walgreens' global chief human resources officer, told Bloomberg, quote, we've continued to make investments to elevate the role of our pharmacists and to foster an environment that enables them to best care for our patients and customers. From Illinois to Indiana to Michigan, bikers and pedestrians will soon be able to travel across state lines on a scenic, non-motorized greenway along the south shore of Lake Michigan. Crane's Jack Grieve reported that the Marquette Greenway Trail Project will stretch 58 miles and connect Calumet Park on the city's southeast side to downtown New Buffalo, Michigan. The project is funded in large part by a $17.8 million grant from the U.S. Department of Transportation to the Northwest Indiana Regional Planning Commission, in addition to millions of dollars in other federal, state, local, and private grants. Construction on the Illinois Strip is already finished. The Indiana part, which makes up the bulk of the trail, is almost fully funded with the exception of one mile-long strip between Burns Harbor and Chesterton, which project managers hope to secure state funding for later this year. Work is underway on the Indiana stretch and expected to be finished at the end of 2026 or in early 2027. In Michigan, the project has secured $5.35 million of the additional $5.6 million needed for the four-mile stretch between the Michigan-Indiana border and downtown New Buffalo. Grieve noted in reporting that volunteers are kicking off their final fundraising stretch and asking for community donations to help acquire the last $250,000, starting with a fundraising event at Bentwood Tavern in New Buffalo on November 3rd. Construction on the Michigan side is set to happen in two phases. Part one, running from downtown New Buffalo to Grand Beach, is set to start in the spring of 2023 and finish up by the end of the year. Phase two stretches from Grand Beach to the Indiana state border and is expected to wrap up in early 2025. About 14 months after foreclosing on a big shopping mall in north suburban Lincolnwood, a loan servicer has decided to put the property up for sale. A Jones Langless House spokesperson confirmed to Cranes that Torchlight Investors has hired the firm to sell the Lincolnwood Town Center, a 423,000-square-foot mall at the corner of McCormick and Tui. Torchlight took possession of the property in August of 2021 after filing a $48.9 million foreclosure suit against it six months prior. Cranes' Albie Galoon noted in reporting that many malls suffered as retailers closed stores and stopped paying rent in the first months of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the Lincolnwood Town Center was one of the biggest local examples of that. He also noted, however, that the mall's problems started even before the pandemic, in 2018 when Carson's, its biggest tenant, closed. Though Room Place, the furniture retailer, moved into the Carson space in 2019, the property still was not generating enough cash flow to cover the mortgage payments, according to data from Bloomberg. The mall's owner, Columbus, Ohio-based Washington Prime Group, stopped making payments on the property loan in early 2021 and filed for bankruptcy protection later that year. Jones Lang LaSalle is now pitching Lincolnwood Town Center as a redevelopment candidate, offering a new owner the opportunity to transform the mall, which sits on a 31-acre site, into a 2 million square foot mixed-use property, according to Real Estate Alert, a trade publication that first reported the news of the sale plans. The mall is currently 81% occupied with two anchor tenants, Room Place, which occupies 84,000 square feet, and Coles, with 102,000 square feet, according to the publication. 
A fast-growing logistics company is looking to add 100 jobs in Chicago by the end of next year and has signed a deal for a new Wacker Drive office. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that freight brokerage company Transloop has leased close to 17,000 square feet at 1 South Wacker, where it'll move its headquarters next month from an office building at 343 West Erie in River North, according to the company. A Transloop spokesperson told Cranes that the new space is roughly three times the size of its current one and is opening as the company looks to triple its local headcount to 150 people over the next year. Ecker also noted in reporting that the deal adds to a long list of logistics-focused companies that have grown their downtown office footprints since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. LoadSmart, Flock Freight, Nolan Transportation Group, and Molo Solutions are among the freight logistics firms that have also signed leases for new office space over the past year. Transloop is subleasing the space from cryptocurrency exchange Gemini, which signed a 10-year lease earlier this year on the 29th floor of the 40-story building and built out its office. But a difficult summer for cryptocurrency companies pushed Gemini to lay off about 10% of its workforce, and the company never moved in. Transloop also debuted this year on Crane's annual list of the Chicago area's largest privately held companies, ranking 375th with revenue of $75.9 million last year. That was more than triple its revenue in 2020, giving it the greatest percentage growth in revenue of any company on the list. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.